At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello everyone. It's David Nutt here and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast with me. My guest today is a man you probably most of you would never have heard of, but you should have done. His name is Aldo Badiani. He's a pharmacologist. In fact, he's currently and recently in the last couple of years been taken up the role as Professor of Pharmacology and Head of the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology at the University Sapienza in Rome. But before that, for eight years, he was working as a professor in the University of Sussex in Brighton. And that's where I met him. And Aldo has done some really very innovative work in the field of addiction. He's a bit like me. He's someone that actually thinks about the uh, what's being said about these disorders and then does some experiments to sort of test theories. And that's why I've invited him on the program today. So welcome, Aldo. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be invited here. So tell us a little bit about your background. Then you're you're obviously Italian to start with. Yes. Yeah, I'm bred and born Italian. I have a degree in uh, doctoral degree in medicine and uh, surgery. And at certain point during my during my studies, I decided I didn't want to be a surgeon. I was trained as a gastrointestinal surgeon, believe right. it or not. And then I decided, well, that's not my cup of tea. And I thought that really the only things I really enjoyed were the basic sciences in medical school and in particular uh, pharmacology, if you want to call it basic science. And I became very interested in motivation and reward. And I applied for a postdoc uh, with Jane Stewart at the University, um, the Concordia University, Montreal, Canada. I don't know how many of you know Jane Stewart. You should know Jane Stewart. She's one of the grandmothers of the biopsychology of motivation. Yeah. A wonderful woman and very well, wonderful, very thoughtful, very one of the minds in the field, one of the most respected yeah. scientists in the field. So really a mentor. I always look up to her as, you know, as a great scientist. So I did a postdoc with Jane. I mostly squandered my time doing experiments that I don't care to remember now, except for I'm exaggerating a little bit here. But anyway, about the time I was. Uh, I was leaving Jane's lab to go for another postdoc in uh, Terry Robinson lab, the University of Michigan. Oh, so you were crossing your path around the uh, the dopamine motivation experts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So exactly. So my training has been all in the field. So my, my training room was in psychopharmacology. And then I went in just to the lab and where I, I discovered that the environment is very important. So it was a surprise for me as a pharmacologist. I was used mm. to think in terms of receptors and drugs, and that's it. And uh, hopla, you get the effect. And then I discovered that was not the case. And when I moved in uh, to Terry Robinson Lab, I continued this initial observation I made in just Stewart Lab. I didn't have time to explore formally the phenomenon. 
And Terry Robinson was very interested in the role of environment in modulating the response to drugs such as cocaine and amphetamine, psychostimulant drugs. Although, just hold on a yeah. sec. I think most of our most of the listeners won't understand quite what uh, important roles uh, Jane and Terry had in this field. Could you just maybe tell them a little yeah. bit about each? Because you know, most of them aren't neuroscientists, so they they probably haven't heard of them. But they these are very big people in our field, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So Jane come from a tradition in uh, in Montreal, uh, the Center for Studying Behavioral Neurobiology that spanned from the Concordia University and McGill University. And they go back to figures such as uh, Darbin Bindra, who was an Indian-born Canadian neuroscientist, actually biopsychologist, let's say. He was really the father of the first modern theory of motivation what we call now the Bindratos theory of motivation. So these were people that at the time in which the behavioral pharmacologists and behavioral psychology were the dominant trend in North America, they were more concerned about what was actually happening in the brain. Whereas behavioral pharmacologists and behavioral psychologists were interested in looking at behavior, and that's it. It was the time of the black box. So seeing scientists... It's not by chance that Dalby DB was uh, Indian, so a foreigner. So he was not, let me say, shaped by the <laughs> by the, yeah. the cultural environment of North America. Oh, this is important. Yes, indeed. So that this was a new venue in the study of the biopsychology of motivation. Just Stewart was right on that line of research, and did, she did seminal work on studying animal model of drug addiction using self-administration, and she discovered the, the important role of environmental factors in shaping the response to drugs, especially in terms of condition responses. And she was also the, the mind behind the development of one of the most used, yes, actually the most used animal model of drug addiction at present, which is the, an animal model of relapse into drug craving after the period of abstinence. So that model was developed in her lab and now is used with modification by Yamin Shaham as used almost everywhere. So and Terry, Terry is another interesting figure. Terry has a, has a background from the United States to Canada. He is a Canadian national with double nationality. He studies in, in the United States. Then I think probably because of the Vietnam War, he had an interest in studying in Canada. And so he spent a few years in Canada. And from what I know, he, he really decided to become a neuroscientist working with another great figure in the field of biopsychology, Ian Wishaw, uh, the University of Lethbridge in uh, Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. It's incredible how Canada produced a number of very important figures in the field of motivation of the world. So in the, in the, in the lab of, uh, of in which Terry, which at the time was little more than a, a punk, let's say, was, he was a hippie type of mm-hmm. guy. But then he discovered science and that was a, lo- a love of first sight, I guess. And after that, he became a bona fide neuroscientist. He worked with the prominent electrophysiologist, I can't remember his name, Wonderwolf. And then he took up a position at the University of Michigan where he became interested in, in a phenomenon that he thought he had just discovered, that is the, that is the phenomenon of drug sensitization. At the, at the time, pharm- psychopharmacologists were very familiar with the phenomenon of tolerance. 
repeated yeah. exposure to a drug lead to a reduced response to the same dose of the drug. Another phenomenon is completely the opposite occurs for some drugs, not for all drugs, and only with certain type of drug regimen. And it consists in an increase, in a progressive increase in the response of, to the drug, to the same dose of a drug over time. Actually, we can say that Terry discovered this phenomenon if it were not for the fact that many years before someone else had described similar phenomenon in dogs. Okay, we're talking about the times in which people were using basically the home cut to inject drugs and, and, and to studies. I mean, we're, we're not very rudimentary type of scientific approaches, but anyway. People have described the phenomenon of sensitization. Terry, actually, there is a lesson here. Terry is one of the most scholarly scientists I know. That is, he is not happy if he doesn't go back to the old literature to verify whether a phenomenon uh-huh. has been already discovered. And really, this is a, almost a lost art. Yeah, at the time in which people tried to avoid knowing that someone else has done the same things before, because otherwise things are not new, you cannot get, you know, know the story. I'm getting old, so now I'm starting to complain about the old, the the new times compared to the old one. Anyway, so Terry, I must say that I learned that this lesson from Terry, check for the literature, to the old literature, and you will uh, read it, not only cite it, but just read. And so Terry, Spend a lot of time on this, but it's important. So Terry was uh, studying uh, sensi- drug sensitization, sensitization to uh, psychostimulant drugs, especially amphetamine. And he was he initially was interested in this phenomenon because amphetamine is a psychotomimetic drugs in those animals and humans, signing symptoms reminiscent of psychosis. Actually, exposure to amphetamine can produce a frank psychotic episode in some individuals. And so Terry was, was interested in the amphetamine sensitization as a possible animal model of psychosis. And then he became interested in, in another aspect of this phenomenon of sensitization, whether it could play a role in the development of uh, addiction. So yes. whether this phenomenon of sensitization may be one of the mechanisms responsible for the increasing attractiveness of drugs to individuals yep. who use drugs such as amphetamine, cocaine, opioids, etc. At the time I was uh, in Terry's lab, so I arrived in Terry's lab at the end of 1992. I remember because there was the presidential election and Clinton got elected uh-huh. uh, and great times. So Terry, right at the time, was developing a new theory of drug addiction that is, uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, with Ken Berridge. Yes, so the incentive, right. sense, incentive selling sensitization theory of drug addiction. Basically, they, they proposed that whereas Darby Binder and others have suggested that stimuli, rewarding stimuli, activate circuits in the brain that attribute salience to the stimuli and produce an internal state that can be described as pleasure. Terry Robinson and Ken Berger thought that so proposed, based on experimental evidence, of course, that they actually there were at least two separate types of circuitry. One type of circuit, one circuit was activated by stimuli and processed the hedonic property of the stimulus. So originate, it originated uh, pleasure, conscious pleasure, unconscious pleasure, whereas other circuits, particularly one circuit, in particular the dopaminergic circuit originating in the midbrain and projecting to the striatum, the mesolimbic dopaminergic system, the system was involved in attributing incentive salience to stimuli. 
So what was original in this uh, theory is that although under normal condition, the pleasurable aspects of reward and the motivational aspect of reward, liking and wanting go together. Usually you like what you want and you want what you like. Under certain conditions, these two processes could be uncoupled so that the, the circuits that regulate wanting that probably was the dopaminergic system, but they never, they never linked the theory specifically to the dopaminergic circuitry. So the, the theory was about different circuitries processing liking versus wanting. And that's but, very powerful because that, that really accorded with many patients or many people, many addicts. Exactly. So the, this was the one characteristic of the theory was, got, was very successful among physicians actually involved in uh, treating people with the substance use disorder, as we call them now, and in people with addiction. So yes. whereas neuroscientists uh, were much more tepid, at, at the beginning there was a very, a very strong reaction towards this new theory. The old timers didn't like it for many reasons, and other people found it disconcerting, this idea that you can mm-hmm. uncouple wanting yes. and liking. What was beautiful about this theory could account for one interesting phenomenon, that many addicts described their craving for, for drugs in terms, in, in terms of desiring the drug, not necessarily liking the drug yes. more and more. So actually many people say, ah, it's not that they like the drug, I want the drug. So the, the, this biopsychological theory provided a neural basis for this type of phenomenon. So if you can show that the amphetamine can sensitize the dopaminergic, dopaminergic transmission, sensitize the mesolimbic dopaminergic circuit, then you can go from repeated use of cocaine or amphetamine, psychostimulant drugs that increase dopamine level in the terminal region of this, of this uh, circuit, you can go from this repeated action of these drugs on the circuit to the sensitization of the circuit and, and therefore sensitization of wanting, sensitization of the incentive salience component of, of, of reward. Well, did I describe it clearly or? Uh... Yeah, that's, very, that's a very clear description. And that's why, and it, as you said, it was, a, it was a sort of landmark discovery that there are, there are two processes, not one. Exactly. And, and which of the ones did you work on when you went to work with Robinson? I, on neither. <laughs> so I was working on my original idea. So I brought with me this idea that the environmental context could have an effect, a powerful effect on the response to drug. And the reason this idea came to me, a power effect beyond conditioning. Okay. So everybody was comfortable and familiar with the notion that if you repeatedly pay a neutral stimulus, with a stimulus, an unconditioned stimulus, a stimulus able to produce a response on its own, if you repeatedly pair neutral stimulus and unconditioned stimulus, then the originally neutral stimulus acquired the the ability to trigger a response similar to that of the unconditioned stimulus. So if you pair, let me say, a light with the administration of amphetamine in rat, Mm some of the responses produced by amphetamine will eventually be triggered by exposure to the light alone. Okay. Got it. So everybody was quite familiar with, and James Stewart did a lot of work on this kind of phenomenon. 
and most people in the field were very comfortable in this phenomenon because it went back to the to the discovery of Pavlov. The, it chimed with the learning theory by Lescorle Wagner. So th- there was an underlying basis that made this kind of phenomenon very interesting to study and, and not particularly challenging. What I observed was something different. I found that the environment surrounding the animal, forget about learning about the environment, just the environment surrounding the animal at the time the animal received drug treatment changed the response to the drug. So what I noticed that animal receiving three milligram per kilogram of amphetamine, they were moving around. Amphetamine is a psychostimulant drugs, but not as much as I remember from previous experiments done in other in other lab. So now this is a very tentative observation. It's very informal. But to me, it was quite striking, the difference. And I wanted to explore it in more detail. And this is what I did in Terry's lab. So we compared everything else being equal, the response to amphetamine in animals that were living in the test environment or they were brought to the test environment just for the, for the treatment. So basically, some animals were treated at home and other mm-hmm. animals were treated outside the home. But yeah. actually, the test environment was identical. The only difference yeah. is that for some animals, the test environment was home. Yeah. And I confirm exactly what, what I noticed in, uh, formally. That is, animals that received the drug outside the home, they were moving much more in response to amphetamine. And we observed the same with cocaine, and particularly interesting to Terry, so for me, was that this, the degree of sensitization, the magnitude of sensitization was much greater when these drugs were taken outside the, the, outside the side. Yeah. So then we extended this, this, uh, the observation also to other drugs, such as morphine, heroin, so opioid <laughs> drugs that are in a completely different manner than psychostimulant drugs. And in Terry's lab, we did a, quite a bit of experiments and investigated the role of uh, adrenal hormones, because at the initially thought, oh, well, this is the classical stress response. Maybe yeah. the animals are stressed by the novel environment and this potentiate the response to amphetamine, but turned out not to be the case because we remove adre- the adrenal glands of the animal and, and the phenomenon was still there. So we checked whether there were issues of pharmacokinetics, how um, the distribution mm-hmm. of drug to the brain, and there were no differences. And then we did a, a very crucial experiment. We measured dopamine in response to amphetamine in animals that received the drug either at home or outside the home. So now the same type of animals, uh, the same physical environment, but for one animal, for a group of animals where it was home, for others it was not home. And we measured dopamine in response to using microdialysis. And with our amazement, this huge difference in behavioral response were not coupled with difference in dopamine levels. Actually, dopamine levels were exactly the same in the two groups. So this, this was really striking because it suggested that maybe the dopaminergic system was not the, the last word in terms of response to drugs such as amphetamine and cocaine that are, after all, drugs that uh, are... <laughs> exactly. So they, what they do, they increase, they block, they act at the level of the transporter, dopamine transporter, and increase the level of dopamine at this synaptic and extrasynaptic level. So this was a big surprise, and we did the experiment using uh, techniques that at the time were cutting edge. Now they are quite common. Uh, we did in-situ hybridization on, on an extremely large scale. We collaborated with Huda Kill Lab at the University of Michigan. Huda Kill was the, that was the empire of in-situ hybridization at the time. 
And so we use uh, immediate early genes as an index of neuronal activation. And we found that despite the fact that dopamine levels were exactly the same in the striatum and nucleus accumbens of the animals, depending on whether the drug was given at home or not at home, there was a different activation of striatal neurons. So dopamine levels were exactly the same, but the striatal neurons were responding in a very different manner. So the information must be coming from other parts of the brain. We had some evidence that could come from the information from the cortex, from the prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex. We never managed to, to go to the bottom of this, of the ZAT circuitry, but what we found upstream from striatal neurons. What we did, in particular Terry, after I left the lab, did was to verify that indeed the entire downstream transmission from the striatum was very different in the two groups of animals right. in the drug that right. almost at the home. Now, so that was the moment in which I left Terry's lab after many years. And I went to Rome and I went to Rome with the one idea to verify whether this environmental difference could make, could impact also the rewarding effect of drugs. Because at the yes. time, with the field that was under the, sorry, you can interrupt me, David. Otherwise, no, I you're on a roll. roll. It's, it's very potent, very coherent. Okay. You carry on. So, no. so it's a great the, narrative. The, let me explain why we were interested in psychomotor activity, because otherwise you might be interested in the, the motor behavior of rats. If you're a zoologist or a biologist, but why a psychopharmacologist, theorist of motivation should be interested in the, the locomotor behavior, the psychomotor behavior of rats? Well, at the time, as I said, the field was under the spell of the theory of drug addiction proposed by Roy Weiss. And Roy Weiss has proposed that all drugs of abuse, all drugs of abuse, increase dopamine level in the striatum and mm-hmm. that this neurobiological effect was responsible for two homologous effects, increased psychomotor activity and reward. So basically mm-hmm. the idea was that the psychomotor activity induced by drugs was a proxy for drug reward. Yep. So you study psychomotor activity, therefore, supposedly, you study drug reward. But I'm a, the type of scientist who is not a strong believer in, uh, in, in authority. So I have to check everything. Yeah. And I went to Rome to check whether, uh, indeed, these this influences of environment that we discovered for uh, psychomotor, the psychomotor response to drugs also apply to drug reward. And I set up a lab, a self-administration lab, in which animals were self-administering drugs, either at home or outside the home. So the testing environment, again, was the same, but this time was a self-administration chamber. So the animals had, had um, the uh, opportunity to press a lever to self-administer a drug. There were, also, there were also other levers that did not elicit the drug infusion, the so-called inactive lever. So the, yeah. we could study whether the animal really wanted to self-administer a drug, et cetera, et cetera. So we did first experiment with cocaine, and we found huge difference in between animal tested at home and outside the home. So animal tested outside the home, they were self-administering much more cocaine than animal at home. And there was a, we observed a sort of shift, a leftward shift in the dose effect curve, which can suggest a difference, an increase in the potency of cocaine. And the same with amphetamine. Now, the big surprise came with heroin. Mm. I have run a few preliminary experiments with morphine, actually, and I kept it, it in a drawer because it was very bizarre. 
because it looked like the opposite. The animal yeah. atom was famously yeah. more morphine. But I said, well, well, this is very strange. Let's use heroin, which is the real stuff. Go for the and, gold. Yeah. Exactly. And amazingly, again, animal atom, like for morphine, animal atom took more heroin than animal outside the home. Exactly the opposite of mm. what was observed with cocaine and amphetamine. Actually, we did experiment in which animal were trained to self-administer amphetamine at home or outside the home, and the animal outside the home were taking much more amphetamine, and then they were switched mm -hmm. to heroin after one week of uh, washout. And amazingly, the animal flipped. So the animals that were taking much more amphetamine yeah. outside the home, now we're taking much less heroin yeah. relative to animal testing. And we did many experiments in which we confirmed this finding, and we also observed that the choice between two drugs was determined by the environment. So animal at home, given the choice in between self-administering heroin or cocaine, mostly went for heroin at home. Right. Yeah. Animal self-administering drug outside the home, they went for cocaine. And we did the experiment also using the animal model of relapse that I mentioned earlier, the consist in yeah. giving the animal exposure to a trigger after a period of abstinence from the drug. And this animal resumed working for the drug, lever pressing for the drug, even though the drug is not available anymore. So they were looking for the drug, they look for the drug. So it's taken as a as an index of drug craving, of drug seeking, again, in the absence of drug. And so with the experiment, when animals were trained to self-administer both heroin and cocaine on alternate days, and then we tested them for the for vulnerability to relapse. And amazingly, again, the animal at home were more vulnerable to relapse into heroin seeking yeah. than animals at home. And the opposite for cocaine. So this points to a very crucial, fundamental dissociation in between the rewarding effect of, of opioids, opioids yeah. and psychostimulant drugs. Did you have trouble getting it published? It's a very iconoclastic. Oh, you know, you were, um, oh my God, you, you were... cannot believe it. We send a paper, and not even to, to science, eh? I'm, I'm talking about a good journal, but it was a standard journal in the field, psychopharmacology. Now, this experiment included more than 100 rats, 120 rats, mm -hmm. and it was an experiment mm -hmm. with self-administration. You cannot imagine, yeah. in between the reviewers and the editors, there was in, not enough material there. I mean, the, this was just an experiment for the next 15 years, basically, to, yeah. to be convinced. But the habit of my lab is always to replicate experiments. You know, we want to, to repeat and repeat and repeat to be sure what we have observed. So anyway, we had some difficulty, but no, nothing dramatic. And, and it's amazing how people went from, uh, uh, oh, that's impossible or that's not relevant to, well, so what's up? What's the matter? Oh, okay, so this difference. Oh, that's the environment. God only knows what, what is the reason. And to me, and also to Terry, I must say, because Terry afterwards told me repeatedly that he wished he had limited his theory of the sensitization theory to psychostimulant drugs. Yes, yes. And not totally. So there was, uh, I must say, that it's interesting how such a fundamental, I would say, discovery was, I wouldn't say ignored, but really I did experiment firsthand what, what it means to run contrary to the dogma. Because exactly. let's say the role of dopamine, in, and you know perfectly this because you, you wrote a review, influential yeah. review on, uh, on, on this right. thing. What yeah. many of the listeners won't, they won't quite understand while I'm smiling and why I 
very sympathetic to you because so we, we did a study, as you know, where we tested the, the theory that drugs of abuse released dopamine and, and we did it with opiates. And we just couldn't, you know, we could not find any release of dopamine with opiates. And we sent it off to journals. And, and one, of the, one of the referees wrote back and said, well, we know opiates release dopamine, so you must have done the experiment wrong. <laughs> Honestly, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I, you know, I, I always cite your your studies, and uh, and I cite also the story of the publication of your papers as an example of some as- some pathological aspects of uh, science, the politics of science, right? So I heard talking about your data. I say, oh, but those studies are, are, were not done properly because uh, the drug was administered to people who were uh, drug users. That's right. <laughs> and I say. <laughs> First of all, find me an ethic committee that allows you to sub- administer heroin to a person who never received heroin. And, and after, I, I don't understand this kind of commentary. And finally, I always say to people, if you have a problem with those studies, why you don't do them yourself? Yeah. Which doesn't come cheap, right? I bet you spent yeah. many hundred thousand pounds to oh, do those yeah. studies, right? Well, I think a decade. Uh, I think we spent a decade doing hydromorphone yeah. and then... And then yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that's to be an example of what scientists should do. Test the standard model because theory can be falsified only. They cannot be proven. In fact, what is amazing, Dave, I don't know if you know this. So the only two studies I know in which pharmacological PET was used to quantify dopamine after administration of heroin were done in your lab. Douglas and colleagues in 2008 yeah. and Watson right. and colleagues in 2013, if I'm yeah. So then a few years ago, uh, in 2009, a paper was published by Marcus Haile Lab in yeah. which they tested the effect of morphine. Now, morphine, I don't know why in the States you cannot choose heroin. You have, even with animals, you usually use morphine. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they gave morphine and there was a tiny, tiny increase in dopamine binding. That is, there was a decrease in binding potential in the mm-hmm. order of minus 80%, something like that. So it's very small, tiny. Mm-hmm. So it's a very small. But more recently, Nora Volkos group has done a similar experiment. Have you seen the paper, 2021? Yeah. I don't I remember the, na- the name of the first author. I'm going to send it to you because it's amazing. So... By reading the title of the paper, reading the abstracts, you will never guess that there was no increase in dopamine transmission uh, <laughs> following a morphine. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to understand it from the time. What they found it was an increase in dopamine with naloxone, which is a beauty. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there was morphine, nothing. Naloxone, a small increase in dopamine transmission, and then methylphenidate, which is a psychostimulant drugs, an yeah. increase in... I, I found this uh, a thing of beauty. And they didn't bother putting this finding that to me was the most striking one, right? Correct. And it was not in the part, in the title. It was really, I don't even remember if they said in your papers. They might have, but. They usually don't. <laughs> anyway, this is about you. So, because I want people to learn more about those wonderful experiments you did actually when you, I think when you came to the UK, did you start doing, you carried on with your, your studies at home? Well, yeah, yeah. well actually, it's not easy to do experiments in the UK for two reasons. I want to make sure I don't, I don't say something they shouldn't say. It's very difficult to obtain ethics approval for a person that comes from outside, so is not familiar with the system. It takes years to get the, 
the approval for the experiments. Then you have to fight with the veterinarians in the lab. It's been, it's been really a problem. Just to tell you something that is remarkable. In, in my lab in Rome, we were doing self-administration for years and we had very little problems. Moved to University of Sussex and we started to have a problem with animals getting sick. And the reason we identified was that the animal couldn't receive antibiotic treatment after surgery. Oh. The veterinarian was not allowing it. So that in the UK, we're not, we're, I don't think it was the thing of the UAE. He would, would not yeah. allow us to give antibiotics to animal after the surgery. And so we were losing animal, which is a, an, an amazing heterogenesis of events because you want to do this to protect the animals and then you make, make a, many animals die needlessly. Yeah. Okay? So we had a lot of problem. I don't want to badmouth the, the British system was very generous with me. But I'm saying that sometimes to transfer certain type of experiments is yeah. not that easy. It could have been the reverse, a person moving to Italy and finding you know, all sorts of problems with the, the Italian system. Anyway, so actually I didn't do much with self-administration. The, the role of environment is shaping self-administration. I did other things. What we did, we did some interesting studies, though, looking at the effect of different doses of more um, heroin and cocaine on the brain of the animal, looking at the amygdala, which is a brain area important for the, for the processing of emotions, and other type of nuclei in the brain. You were trying to dissect out, as I remember, you were trying to, trying to understand the, these different brain drives, these different effects, right? Yeah, I, I had an idea about what kind of circuitry was implicated. Yeah. Actually, the experiments required to, to test this hypothesis carefully were so incredibly complicated. And, I mean, basically, it was impossible. So one thing is, is really important to point out is that often, if you want to falsify theory and run the proper experiment, you realize that really there is no way with available techniques to test properly the theory, at least certain aspects of the theory. What happened in many cases, the people, instead of using, try to use change techniques or simply do not use the wrong techniques, they changed the model. For, yeah. So, for example, I had people suggesting me, oh, why don't you do this experiment? He said, the animal has to be immobilized. What's the problem? I said, how can, how can you be at home, I don't say the home, immobilized on, <laughs> on an apparat? So you, you have all this kind of strange suggestion coming from, but some people do not have any problem in making this, this sort of transmutation. I, I test what I can. If the technique is appropriate, I use it. I don't care if it's new or old. And if the technique is not appropriate, it's, um, just keep. so instead of testing exactly what I want to test, I tested the effect of um, cocaine and her versus heroin, and that we found everywhere we looked huge differences, huge mm. differences. Actually, just to, to tell you how uh, how profound are these differences, I mentioned earlier that Terry on lab they look at the at the response to cocaine in uh, at home or outside the mm. home at the level of striatal neurons, right? Yeah. And they found certain kind of difference. At a certain point, they did experiment with morphine mm -hmm. and they found almost the opposite. Ah. <laughs> and they couldn't really, actually, if you, if you look at the paper, you can see that the way in which the data represented, I wouldn't say they were trying to hide the data, but clearly they, weren't, they were not represented in the same way they've done with previous experiment with cocaine. They were interesting yeah. data, but they were going exactly in the opposite direction. And I can promise you something. If you look at the literature in experiments in which within the same type of experimental procedure, you compare side by side cocaine and heroin, yeah. you are virtually always you find 
opposite right. finding. Or if not opposite, at least you find a change with cocaine and yeah. nothing with yeah. heroin or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Every time it's a, it is a, it's a constant. They've done those with self-administration, with uh, synaptic plasticity, mm. with the uh, immediate religious. Wherever they look, heroin and cocaine, they go in opposite direction. And so instead of uh, keeping on insisting with rats, at a certain point they decided to, to test what, what was the situation with humans. Actually, right. for many years, I scored the literature to find if anybody has reported this effect of environment on the response to addictive drugs. And at a certain point, I said, oh, you know what? I'm a, I'm a physician. At the time, I was a associate chief physician at the University of Rome, at the, in the drug addiction unit at the University Hospital in Rome. Right. And we were partnering with a, a huge addiction clinic in Rome. It was a private foundation, a Red Cross foundation. So, so we yeah. recruited people with dual addiction, people who heroin and cocaine use disorder. And we asked them, where do you prefer to take these drugs? Yeah. And not speedballing. I'm talking about people who are doing yeah. independently heroin and cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. So these people couldn't understand why we were asking this question, of course. And amazingly, really, I, could, I, I had to look at the data several times before believing it. These dual drug users, they prefer using cocaine outside the home and heroin yeah. at home. And afterward, we did experiments in which we look at the emotional response to drugs. This was an experiment done by Silvana De Piro, who did the study first as a PhD student and then as a postdoc with me. And she, she is a very creative scientist. She developed a new test for measuring, for quantifying emotional response to drug, hedonic response to drug, building mm -hmm. on a model of emotion by Russell, basically a, a bi-dimensional model of emotion, mm -hmm. which was very useful because it allowed us to get a response an answer to our question, which was not mediated by cognitive process. So instead of asking people how much you like this or something like that, they were, they were just reacting to a diagram uh, mm -hmm. supported by emoticons in which they have to position themselves in one of the quadrants of this, right, right, uh, of right. this diagram. And these findings were even more amazing than the one before, because again, people with dual drug use disorder, they reported that even though they prefer doing heroin at home, they were doing sometimes heroin also outside and the yeah. same for cocaine, preferably outside the home. But when we asked them to focus on the experience, the, the emotional response when taking the heroin at home versus outside the home and cocaine at home versus outside the home, we found a double shift. So the, yeah. the very same people, they experienced the four condition, the same individual. Heroin okay. atom, heroin aside, cocaine atom. So they said, oh, heroin, much more pleasant at home than outside. Yes. And vice versa for cocaine. Yeah. And the same double dissociation was found when we did, when they, we tested these people in a fMRI scan and we found that the corticostriatal yeah. cerebellar circuit was activated in an opposite direction, right. depending on the environment for cocaine versus heroin. This is these are very complex, complicated data, but they, they think of you. And finally, if I can mention the last piece of data, the, yes. I think the crowning finding that was not done by, uh, was not, I still upset with myself. I didn't, I didn't did this quote unquote experiment personally. So we had the lockdown recently uh, yeah. for, for in many countries. Oh, yeah. last the Italian lockdown exactly. is very famous. Exactly. It was a <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So uh, experiments involving a few million people, right? 
So the colleagues at the University of Sussex, they decided to test in what direction the, the, the use of drugs changed during lockdown. Okay. And okay. guess what? The use of psychostimulant drugs went down okay. and the use of drugs such as uh, opioids and alcohol went up. By the way, also we found in rats the same things that we found with the heroin. So the use of alcohol, the intake of alcohol was much greater when rats were at home than outside the home. Right. Yeah, so it's a, it's a depressing so, kind of... Yeah. Uh, yes, this is consistent with the, the theory I proposed about the ecological setting of drug use. So you've, you know, made this remarkable challenge to the accepted theory, and I know you've, you know, you've, you've run into some criticism for, for actually do, for challenging the orthodoxy. Actually, I'm putting the same basket with you, because many people say, oh, you're like David Nutt. You're a party pooper. You're a <laughs> contrarian. I say, yeah, yeah. I'm not contrarian. Sir. The data, they are contrarian to your yeah. theory. <laughs> so what, what are you currently working on now? Now, I presume you've gone back to work after. The yes, lockdown. I mean, as a head of department, I discovered that uh, it's a huge pain in the neck and mm. it takes away much of the of the time available for research. But I'm, I'm writing up papers that, on data collected in previously, again, concerning the pattern of, of drug taking yeah. in dual users. So the pattern of cocaine taking versus the pattern yeah. of heroin take. And they are, you will be surprised to hear that they are completely different in very interesting ways. So we're writing up the, those results. I'm writing with other colleagues a review on uh, the role of uh, heroin metabolites, the contribution of heroin metabolites to the response to the rewarding effects of heroin. Oh, uh, so one of the experiments I did at Sussex in collaboration with Norwegian scientists was to compare self-administration of heroin with the self-administration of its first metabolite, which is 6-monacetylmorphine. Right. So animal self-administered these, these two molecules at the same rate. So we are to- right. talking about the equimolar doses of, uh, of the two drugs. And then we tested the, the effect of uh, antibodies directed towards Six monocytic morphine. Yep. And we found that many of the response to the response to six monocytic morphine, not surprisingly, was blocked, but not yes. the one to heroin. So this is saying that contrary to what many people think, that the effects of heroin are actually mediated by its metabolites, it is possible that a large part of the rewarding effect of heroin are actually due to heroin per se. Interesting. And yeah. uh, Another dogma in the field is that basically no. heroin is just morphine. A so many people use morphine because, like, oh, it, it is heroin is yeah. just a pro drug for morphine, which is. Well, you know, the guy used to be at Sloan Kettering in New York. Was it Pastor Nacker? He was a great painter. Yeah. 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 He yeah. had a theory. He had a theory <laughs> that I remember talking with Les. Les Iverson came to me with this about four, 30 years ago and said, Do you think this theory that he's got is there's a heroin receptor? I, said, I don't know, you know. Maybe, who knows? He proposed there were subtypes of myopioid receptors that were selectively responsive to heroin and one of its metabolites, morphine-6-glucoronide, but not to 6-monocetylmorphine and morphine. So now this data are a little bit problematic. I mean, they've never been fully confirmed. There were many people who don't believe that there are subtypes of myopioid receptors, but for sure there is a lot of literature suggesting that this, whereas for cocaine, or amphetamine, the story is relatively simple. Yeah. These drugs act on a target and, and that's it. The only metabolite of cocaine is important is cocaethylene that yeah. is synthesized when you drink alcohol with cocaine, which is one of the reasons people drink alcohol and cocaine. So cocaethylene is a 
is more or less as effective as cocaine and is, uh, has a longer half-life. But in the case of, of, of heroin, yeah. you have at least, in addition to heroin, other three metabolites that are right. new opioid agonists with very different half-life. So we are, at this moment, we're interested in, in um, investigating whether some of the, the response to heroin is not just one package, it's, it's made of more than one package. And maybe the different metabolites can contribute more to one of the, the effects of, of the heroin experience than other. Well, when you sorted that, you'd definitely get you to come and give a talk to drug science. And, uh, that and, would be a uh, pleasure. I'd love to see you again in the flesh. Okay. It's been wonderful talking to you, as always. And, uh, great pleasure for me. We, we need people to, to break up, you know, to challenge some of the uh, preconceptions in the field, because otherwise people are just wasting but a lot of their time. Can I say one last thing? I think that there is an issue. It's almost an, an issue of etiquette. It is considered impolite to tell other people that they are wrong. Actually, you don't tell people that are wrong directly. You just show the data that are not consistent with what they're saying. And this many people find it aggressive and impolite. Yeah. It's possible that I'm aggressive and impolite, but you know, I'm a scientist, so I think that this should be the, the duty of the scientist. Yes, well, it certainly is. And I can tell you, if you, uh, if you think it's bad in science, Try getting into drug policy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, David, when I talk with students, you always figure prominently because I have two main lines of, of anecdotes. One concern heroin and dopamine, and the other experimenting with hallucinogenic drugs for the treatment of psychiatric conditions. So it's amazing that the kind of obstacles that are placed on you in your way, right? Well. Great to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to know that the Italian students are getting such a good education. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you. Many thanks to you, Dave. Thank and you so thank you, James. Cheers.